morning, good morning. Um, my name is Elliot, uh, I'm the pastor here. It's a pleasure uh, and a joy and a privilege to be gathered uh, in God's house today with you uh, as we do all the liturgical things together uh, where we hear a call to worship, we um, sing together, we pray together, we open up God's word together, and we um, hopefully feast on Jesus and find him beautiful together. Um, so this summer, we have been studying the Apostles' Creed. Oh, I'm seeing a, a spill happened, and now we're, we had to run to get paper towels. How's this public shame going right now? Is that working for everybody? Sorry, it's just middle aisle. I can see it. Um, there, do not feel too much shame about that. A little bit, but not too much. Um, we are studying the Apostles' Creed this summer, which is this historic confession of the Christian faith. Um, it's, it's an expression. It's what we just read. It's an expression. It's a confession. It's a creedal document that tells you, uh, teaches you what it is that biblical Christianity has always believed. Since the inception of the church in the first century, Jesus ascends into heaven and the church is birthed. The Holy Spirit descends at Pentecost and sends the apostles all over the world to plant churches churches to tell people about this Jesus, the Messiah. This document was their document that guided the early church into what is it that we believe? What do we believe about God? What do we believe about Jesus? What do we believe about forgiveness? What do we believe about all the things that the Bible would teach are central to our faith? What are the tenets of our faith? The Apostles' Creed covers it. If you are a biblical Christian, if you believe in the Bible, which we do here, this is the confession. What we just read together is the confession of what you believe. It's rooted in scripture. And one of the most beautiful things about it is, is that it stretches across denominations. That in this fractured sense that there's thousands of denominations all across the globe, but this document holds the tenets together, holds the, the pillars together and says, if you are a biblical Christian, whether you're Catholic or Protestant or Episcopalian, you believe these things in a shared sense. Every branch of the church, the biblical church, confesses to believe these truths. So we've been working through it kind of line by line, not necessarily preaching it, but preaching scripture that proves it, this confession that we believe the Apostles' Creed. So throw it back up there for me, Allie. We're gonna read through what we've covered so far this summer, um, and, and then we'll dive into our line for today. We're almost done with it. We've looked at all this, almost word for word, almost line for line, we've looked at this document. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. And then last week, if you were here, Jonathan Nash, one of our other pastors, talked about this line, I believe in the Holy Spirit, which needs so much more than just one week of teaching. All these do, really. But now that's where we stopped. And so for the next two weeks, we'll cover the last two chunks. And this is where we're going to look at today. This is all flowing logically. That's the hope that you see that like the, the creed flows logically, Father, Son, and then Holy Spirit. Now, because of the power and person of the Holy Spirit that we, we talked about last week, now this line, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints. The church, the people of God, 
It's not talking about a building. It's not talking about a program. It's not talking about a country club. This is really important for us to understand, especially in the West and what the church has become socially for many people. It's really important that in this ancient document, this ancient document that includes every vital tenet of our faith. This is what you must believe and you need to believe and you need to understand these tenets, these pillars to have a, a, a rooted understanding of biblical Christianity. In that document, of all the pieces of our vital theology, this early church confession included a piece of the confession that says the church believes in the church, the people of God. In other words, your ecclesiology, which is your theology or your doctrine of the church, your ecclesiology is vital to your Christian faith and your understanding of Christianity in general. So that's what we're gonna talk about today. What is the church? What is the people of God? What does it mean to be a member of the people of God? The creed says we believe in the church to be these two adjectives, holy and Catholic believe in the holy Catholic church. Let me clear up a little confusion on that. Um, when we say that the church is Catholic, we're not talking about the denomination. Remember this document uh, first existed in the first century before denominations existed. That word Catholic um, means universal. So we're not, we're not preaching against Catholicism. I love Catholics. I've learned from many of them. But this term was inserted before that existed. This term just means, and the early church wanted the believers and the members of the early church to know that the church is universal, meaning the church is global, meaning the church, there is one church in the world. There aren't 10,000 different churches because there's 10,000 different denominations. The church is global. We believe in a global church. And this is important. This is really, really important. You are in a local expression of the local church in 12 South of Nashville, but we are joined to the Catholic church. And this is why this is important because we believe that the church preaches, the church holds, the Bible teaches a Catholic, a universal message, not universalism, but we believe that the message of the church is for everybody. We believe in the Catholicity of the gospel message of Jesus. It stretches across generations. It stretches across continents. It stretches across time. It stretches across cultures. There is nobody in the world for whom the message of Jesus could be irrelevant. That's what it means to say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. It's a little bit different, and again, this is not a sermon on comparative religions, but this is, this is a little bit different than, say, Judaism or Islam. They hold a high value on original geography and original language of their sacred texts. And we study original languages too about the Bible, but here's what happened the moment that Pentecost happened was that the, the Bible says that the message of Christianity was meant to go beyond the bounds of its local geography. It was meant to be a universal message. Immediately, the early church, like Acts chapter two, the early church is going, we've got to get this message to the ends of the world. We've got to get this message to Asia and to the Mediterranean and to Africa. We have to take it from this obscure little village in Israel and take it to the ends of the earth. That is one distinction of the, the church, uh, the Catholicity of it. It is meant to be universal. It is meant to go to everyone. And this Catholic church that we say we believe in is also holy. We believe in the holy Catholic church. That word simply means set apart. 
It means like you pluck something out because it's special, like it's not like the rest, it's different and it's distinct. It's got a separate purpose and a separate mission from everything that surrounds it. So it needs to be taken and set apart. It is holy, it's different, it's distinct. So this holy Catholic church, this distinct universal church, what's the mission of that church? Why does the church exist in a holy and Catholic sense? What is the distinct mission of the church in the world? So we're gonna talk about today and what we mean when we confess it in the Apostles' Creed. I believe, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Two passages we're gonna look at. Um, I'm gonna read through them and we're gonna um, kind of dance in and out of them and show you how they're an attempt to try to hold the mission of the church in these two passages. We could have gone to lots of passages. Really, the mission of the church takes the whole Bible to tell the story of, but we're gonna look at two little passages to talk about what is the mission of the Holy Catholic Church. So first is Matthew chapter 16. Um, It's the first time that Jesus says the word church in uh, the New Testament. Then we're gonna look at a little passage uh, in Ephesians chapter two. Two passages will kind of mash together to try to understand what is this holy Catholic church. First, Matthew 16, it's an infamous passage known as the Confession of Peter, starts in verse 13. It says, now when Jesus, had, Jesus came into the, distinct, into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22 says this. This is Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, the local gathering of the people of God in Ephesus says this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. It's the word of the Lord, amen. Okay, so as we approach this subject of what is the mission of the church, and again, it's like every piece of this creed so far this summer, it's like doing one week on this does not suffice. Uh, the, the job of the preacher is, is, I've got a really hard job, guys, okay? Um, it's way harder than your job. But I, I have to, to think about teaching about what is the mission of the church in one week is like, God, this is, it's like feeling like you have a machine gun and just hundreds of bullets and I can only shoot one of them. It's like, gosh, there's so much to say. There's so much to dive into. But it's important from a macro sense as we approach this question of what is the mission of the church, it's important to reframe and even reorient ourselves as we ask that question. 
Here's this, a simple thesis for the morning. God doesn't have a mission for his church. God has a church for his mission. God does not have a mission for his church. God has a church for his mission. God has a mission for the world. God has a mission in the world. And the way that God has ordained to accomplish that mission in the world is through his church. So the question is, first, before we can find out what is the church and what are we to be and who are we to be and how are we to do it, the question first starts with, because God doesn't have a mission for his church, God has a church for his mission. The question is, what is the mission of God in the world? What is God trying to do in the world that he's got a church to accomplish for him? And in order to answer that question, we really do have to start at the beginning of the story. Because the story that God is writing in the world right now, the story that God is currently writing in history, is the story that he's always been writing in history. His mission has not changed since page one of the Bible. We have to start at the beginning of the story and here's where the story begins. Here's how the story begins in Genesis 1. The first line of the story is where the birth of the mission is. You ready for this? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Stop. Now we're gonna go faster than that uh, as we work through this. But this, this is really important. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. These two realities, the heavenly reality and the earthly reality, the two spheres of, of existence, the heavens and the earth, and they were one thing. You know what that one thing was called? When heaven and earth were completely overlapped, when heaven and earth were completely intertwined, when there was no distinction between heaven and earth, it's called Eden. Eden was the place where heaven and earth were together. Eden, also known as the Garden of Delight. That's what that word Eden means. The Garden of Delight is where God and heaven dwelt with man. They were intertwined. Heaven and earth were together. And what made Eden heavenly was that God was dwelling with man there. There was no separation between heaven and earth. And so when you read in Genesis 2 that like Adam and Eve walking in the cool of the day, like with their father, with, this, is, this was like their evening stroll with, with the creator of the cosmos. That do you know when God knit Adam and Eve together and he formed Adam out of the dust and then he made Eve from, from Adam's side, the first thing their eyes saw like a newborn baby was God himself. It was like Eden was this place where there was no disharmony. There was only unity. There was only bliss. There was only beauty. There was only delight because heaven and earth were one place and we call it Eden. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is setting up the stage for God's intention with and for the world that heaven and earth would be one. But then, Genesis 3, sin enters the picture and when sin enters the picture, it separates the two realities. It fractures it. It disassembles it. It decimates the heaven and earth unity. It's broken and it's ruined. It's been vandalized. It's been spray painted on. It's been completely undone of what it was originally intended to be. And so now God's people, now the created order is, is living in a reality where heaven and earth have been separated because of what sin has done to the cosmos and to the fiber of the world. And so you follow the story of Adam and Eve, you follow the story of mankind in the world where it's not heavenly, where things don't work the way they're supposed to. 
And there's this long checkered road with the people of God and God plucks for himself a people in Genesis 12. He calls Abraham out and he says, Abraham, I wanna make you a special people where I'm gonna be your God and you're gonna be my people and I wanna redeem the world. I wanna reunite heaven and earth through your family, Abraham. And those go, his descendants go on to become the Israelites, but it's still checkered, it's still full of sin and there's a whole history that we don't have time to go into but we finally get to a settled people in the promised land, thousands of years after Abraham. And the mission of God has still been to be, I wanna come dwell with my people again. I want heaven and earth to be one again. I want there to be unity. I want heaven and earth to not be separate because of what sin has done. And so God's people, Solomon, builds this temple. And it's really important to understand the temple is not just this house for God to live in. Solomon says it in 1 Kings 11 when he builds the temple for God. He says, God, you don't live in houses made by human hands. Like we're not building you a house because you've been homeless. The temple represents something way bigger. The temple is an echo of Eden. Because what is the temple? The temple was where God dwelled among the people, but it had to be contained into this place called the Holy of Holies inside the temple but it's the closest thing that the world had known to the intersection of heaven and earth being reunited. God was dwelling with man again. And this idea, God dwelling with his people in a world of beauty, God dwelling with his people in a world of delight, God dwelling with his people has been the plan all along. This is why Eden was created, for heaven and earth to be one. This was it from the beginning. This was what mankind was made for. This is what you were made for. But because of sin, because of the shatteredness of shalom, that's not happening. That's not the way the world is. Heaven and earth aren't one right now. But it's still the plan of God. And here's been the plan of God since the fall in Genesis 3. God has sought to restore the world. He sought to heal the world. He sought to redeem the world. Why? Because God wants to dwell with his people again. God wants to be with them again. He wants to mend the world so that heaven and earth can be one again. And the temple was the first glimmer of that. Oh, maybe God could dwell with us again. Maybe heaven and earth could be one again. Heaven has come down to be with us, but it's only in this little place. And then, okay, so if you have Solomon in 1 Kings 11, he's built this massive temple. God, you come and dwell with us. And it was an echo of the tabernacle of Moses in the, in the wilderness. Again, we don't have time to do all this today. But if you fast forward to like the very end of the story, not like Israel's story in the Old Testament, but like the end of all of our stories, when time will end one day, the return of King Jesus, this is how this whole mess ends. We're gonna talk about this next week. This is the last line of the confession. But this is the future we're headed to. This is the narrative that the God of the universe is writing and is bringing us towards. One day, guess what will be true again? Heaven and earth will be one again. One day, all will be mended. One day, God will restore all of this. One day, this is Revelation 21, the dwelling place of God will be with man again. And we will feast in the house of Zion forever together. That's the end of the story. That's the grand narrative of the world. That's been God's plan since Genesis 1 was that he would have a universe, he would have a cosmos to dwell with his people as their God and to be with them where heaven and earth were one. It's the overarching theme in all of scripture. It's how it started, it's how it's gonna end. But we're not at the ending yet, are we? Newsflash, it's not over yet. It's terrible right now. We're not in a world where heaven and earth are one yet. And before we get to the end of the story, something else cosmic has happened that's like this fulcrum. It's this page turner that everything in history rotates around. 
the pinnacle moment in all of human history was when God did come to dwell with his people again in the person of Jesus. This is really important for your understanding of Christianity. God didn't wait for you to get your act together. God didn't wait for the world to clean themselves up before he said, I'm gonna do something about this. I will come and dwell with my people and not make them climb a ladder to me. I will come and be with them. I will come and dwell with them. That's John chapter one. Jesus, who in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He came and tabernacled. He came and templed. He came and dwelt among us. It's a whisper of Eden. It's a whisper of the temple. Oh, now we've got a temple with skin on. That's God in the flesh right there. He's come to be with us just like he intended from the beginning. Okay, so that's like giant intro, sorry. But here's, here's where we get to the confession of Matthew 16. Please hear Peter's confession of who Jesus is. Please hear it through the lens of what story God, the, what story God has been writing since Genesis 1, okay? Hear the confession of Peter through the lens that God has always wanted heaven and earth to be one and God has always intended to have a kingdom where he could dwell with his people, Okay? You can throw verse 15 and 16 from Matthew 16 up there, Allie. Hear this confession through the lens of God's mission to the world. He said to them, Jesus, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You are God incarnate. Now hear this. You're the one who has come to do the work to atone for the sin, to do everything necessary to bring heaven to earth again. You've come to bring heaven and earth back together and to mend what's been shattered. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You're the one who's come to do that work. And then Jesus says this after Peter confesses that. Peter, just change your name. Let's go to the courthouse and get you a new birth certificate because your name's not Cephas anymore, it's Peter. Peter, on that confession, what you just said, that I am God come to dwell with man again, I am heaven come to earth in the, in the form of a person, on that rock I will build my church. My church will be the place that knows that's who Jesus is. My church will be the place that knows that's the mission of God in the world. Please hear the words of Jesus on that rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. All the things that would wanna stop this union from happening will not stop my mission from taking place. The goal and the mission of God is to restore the world. The goal and the mission of God is to reunite heaven and earth again so that he can dwell with his people again. And Jesus says, for that mission, on that rock, Peter, I'm gonna build my church to do that work. So what is this church that God is building to do that work? How is he gonna do it? What does God do in and for the church in order to accomplish that mission? There are 96 different metaphors in the New Testament to talk about the church. We're gonna go over all of them. No, I'm kidding. But there are 96 different metaphors in the New Testament to talk about the church. All of them have this thread in common that the mission of the church through any metaphor you wanna use is that heaven and earth would be one again so that God might dwell with his people again. And the church is the, is the way that the Lord is going to accomplish that. I picked one passage from Ephesians chapter two. Read it with me again with all of this background, all of this info leading up to what is the mission of this church? What is, what is the mission that God has a church for to accomplish? 
Ephesians 2, verse 19. It's just four verses. <clears throat> so then, talking to the church, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22 is the kicker. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you hear it? Do you see this, this piece of the puzzle fitting into place with the whole narrative that God has been telling since the beginning? The church as in the people of God, saved by Jesus and belonging to him, is the dwelling place of God on earth. In other words, the church, the global, universal, holy Catholic church in the world, with all of its thousands of local expressions, is to be in the world the colony of heaven. The church is the colony of heaven in the places where they've been placed. The church is the place. The people of God are where God dwells in the world. And so because of that, the church is also the place that brings the healing of heaven with them wherever they go. You are the church. You are a temple of the living God. You are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You carry heaven with you. And so the church brings, the people of God bring with them the aroma of heaven into all of their life into your workplace and into your home and into your hearts and into your marriages and into your colleges and everywhere you go, you are the presence of God in the world. You are the aroma of heaven with you wherever you go. Why, how? Because God dwells in you. By the power of the spirit, you are the temple of the living God now. Church, you are the temple sent from Galilee to Rome to London to 12 South. You carry the spirit of God in you. And now you give the world hope that really one day there could be a reality, there could be a city, there could be a place on earth as it is in heaven, which is what we were taught to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you hear the echo of Eden in that? Like we were meant, heaven and earth were meant to be one. Church, would you make Nashville more like heaven? That's the mission of the church, to be the dwelling place of God in the world. Make your world more like heaven. That's the mission. God's mission is to restore and mend the world, to bring heaven into earth that he might dwell with mankind again to be with them. This is the grand mission of God in the world and God does not have a mission for his church. He has a church for his mission. He intends on accomplishing this mission through his church, his people. This is why in 2 Corinthians chapter five, which is another, we almost preached through that this morning. We could have used the whole second half of 2 Corinthians five to do the same sermon 
but it's too long. You're welcome. Okay, there's a lot of verses, okay? But here's, here's what 2 Corinthians 5 says. God has reconciled you to himself through the person and work of Jesus, and now he has given you, church, the ministry of reconciliation, and you are to be ambassadors of reconciliation. And then it says this. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, and now he is making his appeal to the world through what? You. God is making his appeal to the world through you. Like his billboard for the world is his people. Not always so pretty. But that is the mission that, is the mission that God has given to his church. He has a church to accomplish that mission. He is making his appeal to the world through you. The church is not the place where you come for a buffet of needs that you want to get met. The church is not a means to an end of you finding personal nirvana. The church is tied, inextricably tied, to God's vision to mend the world. This is so not a, what's my vocation story? It's not what this is. This is not a, God fills the giant-shaped God hole in my heart. He does, not the point of the story either. That's not what story we're telling. This is a, the God of the universe has been writing a story across history and it's a story to mend the world and where does your little, little, little mist and dot of a life fit into that story story? That's the story of God in the world. That in three generations, no one's gonna know who you are, I promise. You will not be remembered, they will not make a movie about your life, you will be forgotten. Read Ecclesiastes, it will all go to waste. But while you're here, while you are a part of this thing called the church, God has a, has a mission. God has a church for his mission. You're like a puzzle piece and your life will make absolutely zero sense until it is put into a bigger picture that is bigger than itself. And this is the picture. This is the canvas that you get to fit on. The rejoining, the reuniting of heaven and earth. And you get to play like a dot in that story. But it's a big story. And it needs a lot of people. And it's for every tribe, tongue, and nation, and language. It's for all peoples. It's universal. It's Catholic. He's got a church for his mission. And you get to play. You, your little puzzle piece does have a spot, does have a role to play with the gifts that he's given you and the roles that he's given you and the places that he's called you. But this thought of like my little puzzle piece fits into this thing and it doesn't, my puzzle piece makes no sense. Have you ever stared at one puzzle piece and tried to figure out what the whole thing is? It's impossible. You can't know what the whole thing's supposed to be unless that thing is joined to the bigger canvas, which is so counterintuitive for us today. This is, this is not how we have been raised or trained to think about our life. We were raised to ask the question, what do I wanna be when I grow up? And we've all been told this. We've told our kids this. You can be anything you want to be when you grow up. No, you can't. You're not going to be 6'10". You're not going to be playing professional basketball like in daddy's dreams, getting crushed all over again. Like, you're not going to do that. It's not going to be your life. You can't be whatever you want to be. You have limits. You don't have all the gifts. And then we tend to believe, like, what do I want to be when I grow up? What am I going to do with my life? And I can do whatever I set my mind to we then think that I have to hit that bullseye like perfectly, like right on the number, right in the middle of it. And if I don't hit it perfectly, then I'm not gonna have any joy or meaning or purpose. And I gotta figure out what's my purpose, what's my 
vocation? What's my job supposed to be? What am I supposed to set my mind to, to make a difference? And then when we don't have those answers, when we don't feel clear on those things, we, we tend to go, okay, well, I tried grad school and then that didn't really fill it. And so now I got to try something else. Well, I tried getting married and that didn't really make me feel any different. So I got to get a different marriage. Or I tried going off and being a lawyer or I tried being a full-time mom or I tried being a teacher and none of that seemed to work and make me feel like I'm hitting my mission and my purpose in the world. So I've got to find a new mission and purpose and vocation. And we bounce around. We've got to find something that fits our, that makes our little puzzle piece feel significant. But then the Bible invites us into having a vision for your life that's so much bigger than you that your puzzle piece doesn't make any sense until it's placed where it's supposed to be placed in the grand narrative that God has been writing in the world. Do you, do you know the misery of a life that is centered only on the self? And thinking about like, what is my purpose and my vocation and how am I gonna find fulfillment and how am I gonna stack my bank account and how am I gonna get my lake house and how am I gonna... That, that mission is miserable. Do you know how boring you are? And so do you know the boredom of a life that is only built on the self? Your life is a dot and it doesn't make any sense if it's disconnected from the grand story of time and history that God has been writing since the beginning. See, but we have been taught to think that like deciding for ourselves what our life and our mission and our purpose and our vocation should be, we thought that was like taking the keys back and I'm gonna drive this car and I'm gonna go where I wanna go. We thought that would liberate us. We thought that would make us feel alive and feel free to go do what you wanna do and be what you wanna be. The problem is, is it hasn't liberated us. It's done the opposite. It's jailed us. It's made us imprisoned to the pressure of having to make our life feel and be so epic that nothing ever satisfies. The difference between what culture would tell you and what the Bible is offering you is that you and I don't get to make up the story. It's not you and me forging a story for ourselves. It's you and I being found in a story. And when we get found in that story that's bigger than us, it actually heals us. It actually saves us from our narcissism and our ego. It actually begins to heal all the wounds. And it's only in joining my life to that story do I ever get a sense of this is what I was made for. This is actually what I was created for. About a decade old, but Fleet Foxes, yes? Anyone, Fleet Foxes? Helplessness Blues, yes? Golly, that song. I was raised up believing I was somehow unique, like a snowflake distinct among snowflakes. Unique in each way, you can see. And now after some thinking, I'd say I'd rather be a functioning cog in some great machinery serving something beyond me. They get it. Haven't talked to them, but they get it. Your life, my life is not some unique snowflake among snowflakes. It's not. You've been lied to. And you don't need the autonomy or the ability to try and break the mold of finite humanity. You're not infinite. You don't have all the gifts. You don't have all the talents. Your life is not epic. It wasn't meant to be epic. 
And you will be miserable if your life is controlled by the pressure of having to make your life feel and be epic all the time. And so we, we have this like, we have these existential crises like every three months because it's like, what am I doing? What have I done wrong? And I turned right and I should have turned left and now my whole life is ruined because I made this decision when I was 14 and now it's like set up this thing and I didn't get into Harvard and I didn't get, and it's like I didn't do all the things that I was supposed to do and so now my life, my little puzzle piece, can someone tell me what all this is about? Someone make me feel special and like a snowflake among snowflakes and it's like, you're not a snowflake. You're a puzzle piece that fits in a grand narrative and what's the narrative? God is mending the world to reunite heaven to earth and he's inviting you to be a part of it. And he wants to dwell in you. He does dwell in you if you're a Christian. He already dwells in you. And now you carry heaven with you in every arena you walk into. The justice system, the educational system, the hospital system, the home system, the roommate system, the mothering system. You carry heaven with you. And so now you are the dwelling place of God. You are the temple of the living God. You are beginning to give the whisper of the faraway country that's saying, one day heaven and earth will be one again. One day this will all be made right. One day this mending will happen. And I'm a part of this grand story. It's not about me. And your life will only start to make sense if it is caught up in the story that God is writing in the world. And what story is God writing in the world? He's doing it through his church, not through this building. This building houses us for our weekly liturgy of Sabbath rest to remember who we are and who he is. But this building is not the church, you are. And the church is how God is accomplishing his mission in the world. He's doing it through his church. And the offer to join the story, to join the tapestry, the offer to join the church is holy and it's Catholic. It's for everyone. There's just one asterisk. There's just one catch. Is that if you wanna join this mission, if you want your puzzle piece to fit in, the only thing that will get you in is your weakness. You have to take off your masks and you have to admit that you don't have it all together. The church is the only organization in the world where the only qualification for entry that you need is to be unqualified. It's for the sick, not the healthy. The church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for the righteous. It is a place where your weakness will be welcomed and your wounds can be healed by the gospel salve of Jesus Christ himself. The church is not for the haves, it's for the have-nots. The church is not for the doers, it's for the can'ts. That is, what the ch that is who the church enlists because that's all there is. In the words of Catholic priest Ronald Rollheiser, yes, anybody, Ronald Rollheiser? Man, y'all don't know anything. I'm kidding. I was recently introduced to him. Uh, says the church always looks exactly as it looked at the original crucifixion. God hung among thieves. He goes on to say, to be connected with the church is to be associated with scoundrels, warmongers, fakes, child molesters, murderers, adulterers, and hypocrites of every description. It also, at the same time, identifies you with the saints and the finest persons of heroic soul within every time, country, race, and gender. 
To be a member of the church is to carry the mantle of both the worst sin and the finest heroism of the soul. No one should be surprised or shocked at how badly the church has betrayed the gospel and how much it continues to do so today. It has never done very well. Conversely, however, nobody can deny the good the church has done either. It has carried grace, produced saints, morally changed the planet, asked Tom Holland, and made, however imperfectly, a house for God to dwell in on this earth. That's the church for the mission of God. Sinners and saints, the church, the colony of heaven in the world until Jesus returns. Christian, you believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of the saints. Let's pray. Jesus, you have many names and images for the church. You call us the temple, you call us your body, you call us your hands and feet, but you also call us your bride, the bride that you long to be one with again, the bride that you cannot wait for wedding day to have as your own. And so Jesus, your bride is here. Those of us that have called on you, those of us who have been called by you to be your bride, would you draw more sons and daughters that are far off to yourself, even this morning? And for those that are already members of your body and your church. Would you comfort us, nourish us, feed us and guide us as we come to your table, we pray in your name, amen.